Coming to you from Las Vegas, still the entertainment capital of the world, I'm your host Christopher Calloway for Creator Talks, the show where I interview writers and artists and others connected with comic books and their creation. My guest today is Christopher Condon, who is the writer of That Texas Blood, being published through Image Comics. He is working with Jacob Phillips. You've seen his work with the essays in the back of Kill or Be Killed, and he did the colors on Criminal and My Heroes Have Always Been Junkies. So Chris is working with Jacob on this comic book, and this is Jacob's first solo work on a comic. So I start off my conversation talking to Chris about how he got his name, of the small town he grew up in, famous people that have been there and came from there, and what's so unique about it. Now, when we get to the comic book, it is a neo-noir, and Chris tells me about the character in the first issue, Sheriff Joe Bob Coates, who is 70 years old, and crime keeps getting worse, but he keeps fighting it. It turns out that Sheriff Joe Bob Coates is not the central character of every issue, and you're going to find out from Chris why. And some of that has to do with the origin of the series, That Texas Blood, how it was initially developed and pitched. And besides talking about the comic book, I ask Chris the fun questions I ask all my guests, known as kicking back with the creator. I found out what he does for recreation, his favorite birthday, his island book, action figure accessory, and beverage of choice, and more. So after listening to the interview, if you like what you heard, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to helping this show, and don't forget to subscribe because it's free. Okay, without further ado, let me introduce to you my guest today, Christopher Condon, writer of That Texas Blood, here now on Creator Talks. Chris, welcome to Creator Talks. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. How were you given the name Christopher? Do you know the origin of that? Why your parents decided to name you that? I wish I knew. I don't really know. I was just curious. I have no idea for myself either. I'm assuming it comes from uh, Christ. I'm not sure exactly what my parents thought about it. Uh, I do have my father's name as my middle name, Michael. I don't know where the Christopher came from. I'm assuming that my mom probably liked it. I know that my mom wanted me to be a girl. I do know that. Had Caitlin Elizabeth picked out for me, that was how it was going to go. And it did not go that way because I'm me and I like to do things my way. Well, it's funny, when I was in grade school, I went to a, a Catholic grade school, my parents sent me there, and, and they were asking everyone their name, their first name, and they said, oh, and this is for St. John, and this is for St. Matthew, Matt, and, well, Christopher, that's not really a saint. And I felt like the odd kid in the bunch, so I was like, oh, well, I'm going to write the Pope. So I did. <laughs> did he an- He didn't answer, no. <laughs> The Secretariat of State answered from the Vatican. He said, uh, this is best handled by your local pastor. He dodged it. <laughs> As they do when you get As they do. But speaking of growing up and being named and all that, you grew up in Metuchen, New Jersey. Correct, yeah. You pronounced it correctly. <laughs> well, I had a college roommate from Metuchen, New Jersey. He was very proud of it. <laughs> oh. Can you believe that? <laughs> I'll tell everybody the reason why that's so weird is that it is a two-square-mile town. <laughs> In New Jersey, literally smack dab in the center of Edison, New Jersey, which you might know from Thomas Edison. His Menlo Park lab is right down the road. But yeah, it was it's a tiny little town. That's crazy. I, I had some friends in um, in California, actually. They were driving around and their Uber driver, they were like, oh, we have a friend who's from New Jersey. The guy said he was from New Jersey. And then they, they say, oh, uh, where is he from? And he goes, oh, he's from Metuchen. And they were like, what? Like this Uber driver, this <laughs> random occurrence. Metuchen's everywhere, I guess. What are the chances? David Copperfield is from our town. I know that. The magician. I don't know really anybody. I know Patrick McDonald, the Mutz cartoonist, lived or lives in Metuchen. I'm not sure. The only other thing that I know of right now is that Paul McCartney was spotted on the streets of Metuchen. No. His wife apparently is from Edison. So they stopped by Metuchen because the food scene is so great. That is wild. Well, really, is the food scene great? What's going on there? Well, yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, you know, it's food. (laughs) I I, I honestly, yeah, I mostly, I like to cook mostly. There's a really good Thai place on Main Street, I know. There's a really good uh, French crepe place called Cafe Paris. There is a lot of diversity in the food. I will say that. Wow. I grew up in Delaware and there was not the diversity of food. There's subs, there's donuts, (laughs) pizza. Burgers. (laughs) Yeah. That's wonderful. What else was it like growing up in Patuxent, New Jersey? 
Uh, well, I mean, I would say arguably <laughs> I had a good childhood. So like my introduction to comics and movies and everything was Batman, the first 1989 film. Michael Keaton, Jack Nicholson. That was my like formative movie. That was probably the first movie I ever saw. So like right there, I was just like, boom, that was it. And so right from there, it was like kind of like every time I would play with action figures, it would always be like I close one eye, like have them at a higher level. So I could kind of like get like an angle on them. It was always some sort of cinematic. Yeah. Otherwise, it was like fairly normal. I can't really nothing crazy, I would say. Normal family. My my mom was a stay at home mom. She was a nurse before I was born. I have one older brother. My father was a postal worker. Some people are like shocked by this. But so I'm 29. My my father's 81. Uh, my mom's 73. So they are a little bit older uh, than other people my age. Uh, their parents tend to be. So there's that. You know, I think it's less shocking nowadays. I mean, I know back when my parents grew up, like you were 25, you got married or 21. And then you had kids like almost right away. That right there, honestly, was kind of a defining factor for me because me and my best friend, he also had an older parent. And I feel like we grew up in the 90s, but we actually grew up in the 50s and 60s. Like, <laughs> The parents showed us the Fleischer Superman cartoons growing up. Nice. One of my favorite movies growing up was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea with Kirk Douglas. Howdy Doody, they showed me. Red Skelton was like my favorite comedian growing up because I was born in the 50s, apparently. Um, <laughs> that was me growing up. I remember a Red Skelton joke that I told on the schoolyard that they were like, why are you telling us this? But it was like a stupid joke from the 60s. The crime is so heavy in Los Angeles that uh, ladies are going to their salon and saying, give me the new crime wave. Like that was one of his and I'm out there like six, seven years old telling this joke. That's a gift from your parents. That's great they did that for you. I wouldn't trade that for the world. It helped me open doors that I don't think would have been open to me otherwise because it really sort of gave me a grounding. I already mentioned a few movies, television, a lot of older things. So I could have a conversation with um, people of an older generation. So I like I worked for uh, Joe Dante, uh, the film director, for uh, about four years. And that was a really great experience, but also as an experience for somebody like me, who's like a cinephile to just be able to like bounce stuff off of and ask him about like John Borman in the 70s, as opposed to people who their favorite movie tends to be like whatever just came out in the last like 10 years, like a movie that came out 10 years is old to them. To me, like an old movie is the 20s. Nosferatu is an old movie. To me, it's like you're talking about like the conversation or, you know, one of those movies from the 70s. Like that's like kind of modern to me. <laughs> like I think that that's like the pinnacle you know, do you have a cinema time for yourself where you will watch an old movie or an old TV show like at night or on the weekends? Do you like to do that on a regular basis? I don't as much anymore. I wish I did still. I still do from time to time. I just recently watched the Czech film called Fabulous Adventures of Baron Munchausen. That's the name of it. I think I hope I'm not botching it, but that was really good. That was just released on the Criterion Collection as well. When I was maybe like five years ago, I was watching, it was kind of crazy. I don't know. I didn't have a life exactly. I was watching like five movies a day. I woke up at like six in the morning to get a few movies in before work. And then I would get home and then watch more movies. For me, it was almost like a school in a way where it was like, oh, I have to study, you know, so I would watch movies. And I, same thing with reading comics. I would go to the comic shop and I would sit there like a regiment and I would have my stack next to me when I just bought. And I remember in high school doing that. I would have like a stack next to me. I'd be sitting in my Burke lounger, again, older parents, <laughs> reading my comic books. You're getting a really interesting portrait of me. <laughs> I think it's great that you've stayed connected to those things because when I grew up, I was learning things from my grandparents and my parents. They were kind of taking me back to things from the 50s and the 60s. And when I was growing up, all this stuff was in syndication like crazy. And people don't know now today who some of these actors and directors were. I was sitting at work at my desk and I heard someone say, Oh, James Lipton just died. And someone said, Oh, is that the tea guy? <laughs> I think I silently whimpered in my cubicle. I was like, Oh. <laughs> I don't know. I'll talk to some people about something. I'll just throw some information out there. And again, it won't be that old information, but I'll like throw something out there from like the 90s. And I'll still like that. Right even there, they won't know. There's just this sort of cultural stop. Nothing gets through. There's just this sieve, <laughs> just like culture just has i don't know i think of it as a gift honestly it's something that i find formative for me it's really informed the way that i write and the way that i receive my artwork as well so you've always looked at things with a cinematic storytelling eye you were always kind of dissecting it and analyzing it i think so yeah you know i think the reason why i kind of stopped watching as many movies after a long time is just that 
you start to just analyze it too much and then it stops becoming an enjoyment. That is something that I wanted to like take back. I wanted to be like, no, I still want to enjoy these. So I, I kind of cut down on my intake like an addict. But I just recently I saw The Invisible Man. I think that was a fantastic movie. I'm not sure if you saw it. Not yet. I thought it was fantastic. I've been saying for years that if they're going to remake the Universal Harm movies, they should do them low budget, give them to really interesting filmmakers. And then Universal has no question but to make money at that point. They just do it for no budget. This was done for $7 million. It's crazy in terms of movies, obviously. Yeah, much less than The Mummy that did not work out for them. Now, you went to school for film? I did briefly. Um, I went to a place in Burbank called Woodbury University. I had an idea in my head. I was thinking of the greats in the 70s, George Lucas, John Milius, all these great guys. And I went to USC Film School. Um, also Coppola, Jim Morrison even at UCLA. And kind of thinking about like, oh, that was really cool because they were kind of like building something from the ground up. There was no real cinema school at that point. And I wanted to be a part of something like that because you want to be your idols, especially when you're growing up, um, you know, 18, 17, something like that. You want to be them. You want to like do as much that they did. And this place, Woodbury University, they had a new film degree opening up and I would have been the first class. So I agreed to go. Honestly, it was the wrong idea. They just didn't really have anything set up right. It was sort of a sham operation. No, nothing against the school itself because there are other aspects of the school that are really great, especially the animation department. One of my good friends still to this day is uh, Rick Heitzman, who uh, was production designer on PV's Playhouse. He was also Cool Cat, the voice of Cool Cat. You know, there are great aspects to it. I kind of dove into stop motion animation there as well. That's kind of how I dipped my toes into the animation stuff. I did that for a year and a half was going to leave, go to NYU, and just decided, you know, and I'm just going to stay and work because NYU wanted me to uh, basically start over four years at 60000 No, no, no. <laughs> I'd not be in debt the rest of my life. So I decided to stay out there, and I had interned with Joe Dante the previous semester. And so I reached out to his assistant, Mark, who's really been good to me. Joe and Mark have both been really good to me. And I just asked him if I could have a job. If they were looking for anything, and they said, yeah, we have a spot for you. So I worked for uh, his website, Trailers from Hell, and I did uh, their social media there. And um, that was fun, writing little like blurbs and stuff like that for Twitter and Facebook and everything. And then um, and then also working at uh, Renfield Productions, his production company, where I'd read like scripts and stuff like that. But me being me, like I'm like, I love this director. He was one of my favorite directors. I, the Howling was a really important film growing up for me. I know a lot of people like Gremlins is their Joe Dante movie. For me, The Howling was because I just thought it was the most hilarious, brilliant satire of the werewolf genre. I love The Wolfman, the original Lon Chaney. Oh, yeah. To watch the Rob Bottin effects in that film are just like amazing. And Joe's comedy is just like on point. And he's got John Carradine in it, who was Dracula. To me, that was like the pinnacle. And like matinee is obviously one of the great films, but arguably one of the great films, because I know a lot of people probably haven't seen it, but people should. It's a great film. Yeah, I just sort of did that, worked and uh, read scripts for him and did that kind of stuff. And then I, like I said, I was a fan of his. So I started dipping my toes and I'm like, hey, Joe, can I read that script for Dinosaurs Attack? Or can I read that that John Sayles script for the mummy? And he'd be like, yeah, run, run, run. <laughs> that's my Joe Dante impression. And then so kind of through that, I got this idea of like doing some gallery exhibit things because I was always interested in comic book art and pop art in general. I was like, oh, if I do some gallery exhibits, because I was really into like these Mondo posters, these screen prints, uh, which were basically like they would redo a movie poster, but like with a cool design. Sort of was like, okay, if I take that love and then kind of take what I'm doing here and I just like pitch it to them, maybe they'll be cool with it. And so I pitched them this idea of doing like a Roger Corman slash Joe Dante tribute. And uh, we did that in 2014. First thing that we did was we had a double feature of the New Beverly Theater, which is Tarantino's theater. Um, we did a double feature of Matinee and Mask of the Red Death, the Corman film. And we interviewed with both Joe and Corman between the two films. And we had Dana Gould, the great Dana Gould comedian. He did the hosting for me for that. And it was killer. It was great. Everybody loved it. And then the next day was the gallery opening, um, which was in, it's just east of Beverly Hills, the gallery. It's called Hero Complex. And so we did the gallery opening and that was even better. I don't know. It's just really cool to see. First of all, not only did we have all this like great new artwork paying tribute to these guys, we also had all of Joe's props. Bath Buddy, the Gremlin. I literally, I drove all this stuff in my Santa Fe. <laughs> my Hyundai Santa Fe. 
there was a gremlin just staring at people from the, my trunk, um, which I was like, I, I just want to know what these people are thinking. They're probably thinking this is like some remold, but it's like, no, this is the actual one uh, from Gremlins 2, made by Rick Baker. Yeah, that was a really great experience. And then again, uh, did a 30th anniversary print in 2015 for Explorers which is another Joe Dante film. And then 2015, I did a, in October, we did a tribute to Rick Baker, the great monster effects maker. So I sort of like took what I was doing and was like, maybe I could you know, do something for Rick Baker. And they were like, yeah, sure. Okay. And then they just sort of left me alone. And so I just start emailing people. Wow. Do you want to do this? Do you want to do this? And Joe would just, Joe was so willing to just give me anybody's email. Anybody. <laughs> I mean, anybody. like email. Him. Yeah. That was how I met Bob Burns, who has like the original King Kong, which... I was crazy enough to actually happen that I met King Kong, my favorite actor. King Kong is my favorite movie of all time, the original 33 film. And I was uh-huh. able to hold King Kong and like animate him, just like Wilson Bryan did. And that was really cool. Dana Gould actually ended up setting that up for me because he's actually also friends with Bob Burns. But I was in contact with Bob. He was just had illnesses and wasn't able to meet up. We did stay in touch. And uh, that was, again, through Joe. And then Joe would just give me like John Landis's email or Rick Baker's email or any film person you think of. You just get me an email i read um a script from gary kurtz the producer of star wars that he was trying to get made before he passed away because joe was just yeah, let's read the series okay you know i was like eh, it's okay it's not great and joe go, okay it was uh, really an interesting uh, four years and like i wouldn't trade it for anything yeah it sort of was grueling just being in an office for that long and i was just like, i don't want to do this <laughs> well, not going to school for four more years, I see, was definitely the right decision. It definitely worked out for you. It was really cool. I don't know if you can see it. It's like a pod back there yeah. on the wall. Yeah, that was from a 2015 uh, screening we did in San Francisco with uh, Phil Kaufman and Sam Hamm, the writer of Batman. That's one of the pieces. That's by a guy named Dave Viscotti, who's a fantastic artist. He's a graphic artist. But yeah, so I was into artwork then, like through all that stuff. And then so um, doing all that, I ended up making a short film in 2016 called Thesis trying to get into film festivals and it didn't get into a single one but Duncan Figredo I sent it to him and he loved it he in fact said like the nicest thing anybody said to me like the thing was the people I would send it to like guys you know in the industry so I sent it to like Larry Karczewski wrote Edward and things like that and uh, Joe and all these other people and they, they would give me like really good like reviews of it and i'll be like can i use that as a quote for film festivals yeah but it still didn't get into film festivals because i have a theory that it wasn't about any like cultural issues or anything like that it was basically like a wham bam one and done sort of like get in get out grueling sort of thriller thing with like a little bit of hints of comedy which is kind of what that texas plot is too (laughs) um so it's definitely that's a running thing with me but yeah so duncan did the poster for me for that and what he said about the film was it packed more suspense than most big budget blockbuster movies into six minutes than they do in two hours and he did the poster for my movie it unfortunately didn't get any any film festivals, but now I have this great artwork and this great connection. He did uh, the cover for issue two for us, a variant cover. And so through that, again, I was trying to get a film off the ground of that Texas blood, which was then called Passage Prologue. And I was reading Killer Be Killed at the time. Jacob was doing the artwork and the backups for the essays on film. The articles, yeah. Yeah. So I was seeing those and I was like, this art is great. And <laughs> who is this? Oh, it's Jacob. So it's not Sean. Okay. And so I was looking for some way to help pitch the thing, because if you're just pitching words at people, they might, and especially if you're an unknown, they might not. So I asked Jacob if he wanted to do some concept art for me. And I sent him the script and I sent him thesis and I, you know, mentioned Duncan, you know, I worked with Duncan. I did this, yada, yada. And he read the script and he loved it. And he did, I think, four pieces of concept art. And they were fantastic pieces of artwork. They were more obviously like conceptual. They were paintings versus the art that he's done in the comic itself now which is amazing by the way it's it, i can't wait for you to see the stuff that's coming there's stuff in issue five that is just crazy and i just i sat to him the other day and i just it was just caps lock this face so that was how we got involved and then so i've tried for a year to make the thing and it just wasn't happening and i was getting frustrated i was like you know i love comic books so i was like you're a comic book artist do you want to just do this as a comic? And he was excited to do it. So we did a little pitch demo thing, sent it to Image and a bunch of other places, actually. I never thought we were going to get Image. I, in fact, said to Jacob, I don't think we're going to get Image, but let's try. Why not? Uh, it's free, you know? Mm-hmm. Sent it to Image, sent it to a bunch of other places. 
got a lot of no's, but like positive feedback. Basically, the comic industry not being you know strong enough to take on unknown talent, yada yada, which is unfortunate. Luckily, we got Image, which is more of a powerhouse than the others, and uh, we were so lucky to get them. And I got an email from Eric Stevenson, and he said, "If you haven't found a home for this yet, we'd love to have." It. And that was how that Texas podcast started, and that's the whole journey. Well, I'm glad it made it because I saw the preview art. And I read the you know, pitch for the story, the little blurb about it, and I'm like, well, geez, I mean, come on, neo-noir, this is for me. And the artwork, I was like, ah, what I expected, even more. So I can't wait to see what comes up with issue five. But the covers, the variant covers, the interior art, it's solid, man. I mean, this is great. You have a great artist to tell your story. So you have this mapped out in your mind for issues to come. Do you have a beginning, middle, and end? Or are you just going to say, hey, let's see where the characters go? It's a little bit of that and a little bit of beginning, middle, and end. More so beginning and end. The feature script for That Texas Blood was called Past This Prologue. There was another idea called That Texas Blood. It takes place in the same fictional county in Texas because I'm a Stephen King nut as well. Okay. Big fan of his Castle Rock dairy stuff and was like, this is the way to do it if you're going to like set things in like a world. It feels real because it's your world that you're creating. You don't have to like do crazy research into whatever because you can kind of make up whatever. But... That Texas blood is basically Marfa, Texas, Alpine, Texas, Fort Davis, Texas. It's that general area, Presidio County and uh, Jeff Davis County, um, which is an area in Texas that I've been to and know fairly well. I know family from there, the Duncan family. Um, and they were gracious enough to have me over many times in Texas. And it's always a pleasure. That was sort of where that was based. And I had a beginning, a middle and an end and a feature for that text is like called Passive Prologue. Essentially, what you're getting in the first issue is like almost like a one shot. And that's the first act, basically, of the feature. And the second and third act, you will not get until we're ready to close out the comic, which I'm thinking, I don't really want to say too much, but I'm thinking you know, we won't go too lengthy with the issues. I mean, I don't think we're going to get to like issue 50. If we get to seven, that'd be cool. But if we get there, I think it's probably going to be 30 issues. I know where it's going to end. Um, I'm happy with where it ends. I think that's a good catharsis. And uh, everything in between, the way that this world is built and the way that I built the county of Ambrose County, which is named after Ambrose Beers. So there's like a lot of like name references to literary figures. So there's like Washington Irving references, uh, Ambrose County. The name of a hotel is based off of the name is the Belasco Hotel, which is from Hell House. The name of Hell House is actually the Belasco. So all these sorts of like literary references. I, what I wanted to do was have this place be so diverse in character and just the place itself be so diverse that I wanted to be able to tell a story in 1950 and the story in 1981 and a story in 1995 and a story now and the story in 1860 if I wanted to. You know, I want to be able to tell stories throughout the history of this place. And it all kind of converges to tell the story of this county in itself. And Joe Bob is sort of our guide. He's not always the main character. The first issue is a standalone, like I said. So that one's called the casserole dish. Guess what? It's about a casserole dish. <laughs> and the next arc is issues two through six. And that's called A Brother's Conscience. And so that was the script originally that was the Texas Blood, which was sort of a take on Hamlet, sort of, but not really a little bit of uh, Red Harvest, Dashiell Hammett. That's what this second arc is. And Joe Bob's in it, but he's not necessarily the main character. He's there. He's like trying to figure out what's going on there. There's like crimes and murder and stuff like that. So he is trying to figure out what's going on. So sort of his existential crisis in the first issue is expanded upon in those issues. And then we'll continue going forward, but we'll sort of get a taste of the county and what goes on in that county and why that affects Joe Bob now and why things are happening in this county. Is there a reason? Is there some sort of larger thing? Is it just chance? Like, why do so many bad things happen in this canon? That's an interesting start to open the series with basically a one-shot. I can't remember a time when that's been done. I know sometimes you have an arc, the one-shot arc, a one-shot to kind of break things up, but that's an interesting way to begin it. So the reason why was that how I was trying to do the film. Here's the thing. So I was trying to get that Texas Blood made, that script. And so I thought it would be interesting to do a sort of peripheral story, not with the main characters. Um, so that one would be called Passive Prologue. It would be with the sheriff who's kind of in that Texas blood, but not. 
And so I wrote that as the standalone thing that would just be like, instead of doing like the whiplash thing, which is like, we filmed a scene. This is what the movie is. It was going to be, this is a taste of what we're going for, the feelings we're trying to evoke, mm-hmm. without telling the story, giving away a scene in the film. I thought that was a good way to go, and then I ended up loving Joe Bob so much that I wrote another feature script entirely, just with Joe Bob as the main character, and that was called Passive Prologue, a full 90-page script. That was uh, basically how I approached this, was that I was like, you know, that's a good way to kind of start it with a gunshot, almost like, boom, you're here, this is what this place is, welcome. <laughs> and uh, we go from there. So, like I said, you meet characters and they recur. Or you meet their brother, or their sister, because you know these small towns are like that. Mm-hmm. People just leave. That's the thing is that they and they don't want to leave. Like this is their home. It's like why would I want to go to Paris? I have everything I want here. I literally heard somebody say that. <laughs> I don't know if you saw it. So there was a birth movies death post about our comic, which is really cool. Um, and then also we actually just had a review published in uh, Nerdist of the first issue, and they were really nice. <laughs> they said so I was, I was really happy about that but on the birth movie's death post everybody was really kind and i don't want you know just universal praise that's not what i'm looking for but some guy was saying about what i said about texas was that it's like a mythical place it's america's mythical place and what i mean by that is not that there's dragons or fairies or anything like that what i mean is that it's like the place when you visit it it doesn't feel like any other state there's something about the fact that they're in this you get the same thing in like oklahoma or even in nevada you'll get this in joshua tree where there's just nothing around and it just like anything can happen i I remember i went out to the vasquez rocks and the sun's going down and i'm looking at a signpost that just has bullet holes and i'm thinking to myself what if i hear a gunshot like what if they don't see me then sun's going down Mm-hmm. And what it's going for target. You know, these are the kind of things that I'm thinking about for like stories, you know, mm. what happens if this uh, first five part arc is a guy who has been living in Los Angeles comes back to Texas. And why did he leave? Why did he not want to come back? But he's forced to come back now. And like, why does it like affect him the way that it does? So those are sorts of the things that I wanted to play with. And um, the Nerdist article actually really touched on something that I kind of was phrasing in a different way. It plays with masculinity, roles of masculinity. And I didn't think about it in that way. And I was like, yeah, you know, kind of does. <laughs> Which is, uh, I think, something really interesting, especially with like a state like Texas, especially out west and our south in America. You know, there's certain roles that in the East and the West are being challenged and thought of differently than they are in other parts of the country. And then we're seeing that now with the presidential election coming up. This is really interesting stuff to play with, I think, in terms of where we go and how we tell stories and all of that. I'm like really looking forward to messing with that. And that's what I mean by Texas is a mythical place is that this is where we can make myths to tell these stories to be like, there is no more gods and warriors and whatever. So now we got to tell stories about shit, things like that. So it's cool. I don't know. Because it might sound like I'm like, oh, there's murder, there's crime. But I actually love Texas. I think it's a great state. Great music, great barbecue. I've only been there once. I was in San Antonio in the 90s. And my wife and I have talked about going there sometime because we've seen some of the lovely landscape in, in West Texas. And like, oh, we have to get out there. West Texas is amazing. I will say that. Uh, the Vista's crazy. I also really love Dallas. Austin is cool. Dallas is really nice. Uh, people there are the best, especially in Marfa in West Texas. There's this like burgeoning sort of, and not even burgeoning in Marfa. It's like it's there. There's an art presence. There was this guy, Boyd Elder, who lived in Valentine, Texas, and he lived in uh, an abandoned gas station. Um, <laughs> and he was the guy that designed all of the Eagles albums with like the skulls, you know? And I'm at a bar with a friend and we're drinking Lone Stars and he comes around and we're talking to him and then he, I have his number. And, like, that's just Texas. And that's what I love about it. That's like kind of the thing I want to capture. And I hope that I do. I mean, I don't know how people are going to react to it. I hope people like it. I hope people don't hate it, obviously. But, you know, you never really know. Oh, I think they'll like it. <laughs> I think it's good, honestly. I wouldn't have, I don't think I would have stuck with it that long if I didn't like it. Because there's definitely things that I write, and I'm like, oh, that needs to go away. Uh, <laughs> but this wasn't one of them. What are the building blocks of a good neo-noir crime story? What is neo-noir crime? Neo-noir, I would best say takes place in the daylight. <laughs> that is the best way to describe it, is that it's not just shadows. It's not just seedy characters in a bar in 1941. It could be now. 
could be Chinatown. Best way that I can think of it. That when I think of neo-noir, I think of Daylight. I think of LA Confidential. I think of Chinatown. Those are the things that first come to my mind when I think of neo-noir. Um, and of course, the books of Ed Brubaker mm-hmm. and Sean Phillips are stellar. The fact that I have Sean Phillips you know, doing a very cover for me and Chris Phillips doing the artwork for my book and Ed Brubaker mentioning my name in the backup of Criminal is crazy to me because I grew up reading Criminal and I grew up reading his Daredevil, which was really crazy to me reading that when I was growing up and Captain America when Captain America died and they were like, he's dead. And then five months later, no, he's not. He's hit with a time bullet. It's just crazy to me that all these people are involved. But yeah, their work is phenomenal. So in not always the daylight for them, but you know, it's a way to tell stories that aren't just, I can't even classify it exactly, except to say that it's, I would say daylight. It's not afraid of daylight. Crime can happen anytime. Speaking of that, you mentioned that you're a big fan of Stephen King. Have you seen the HBO series The Outsider? You know, I haven't. And the reason why is that I have the book and I'm struggling to start it because I just haven't had the time. Ah, uh, okay. And somebody said, just watch the show, Chris, because like everybody else, just watch the show. I'm like, no, I got to read the book because I'm me. But yeah, I, I've been meaning to read it. Um, I know it's a crime thing. Yes. And he does crime great. Yeah, it is a weekly event for us. We sit down and watch that as soon as it drops on HBO. Well, gotcha. see, I'm also really bad at the TV. That's that's a secret. So I'm really good at movies because you sit down for two hours, you get your thing, you leave. <laughs> <laughs> TV shows, you got to commit. Uh, and you got to come back yep. weekly, monthly, whatever. I, it's hard for me because it's like I'll watch a pilot for a thing and I'll go, oh, I saw that. And then there's five seasons <laughs> that I haven't seen. But I was, I'm like, no, I saw that, yeah. So it's just there's so much that I haven't seen. And it's hard to go back. The catch up on all that stuff. Like people I haven't seen uh Six Feet Under. I can't go back to that. That's too much. I can't possibly fit that in now. The few shows that I have watched, Mad Men was a big one. Mm-hmm. I love Mad Men. That was an amazing show. I think it's probably one of the better TV shows, to be honest. Definitely. Mad Men, I watched the new Watchmen. Watch the Watchmen. I watched the Watchmen. Um <laughs> I don't know if you liked it. I loved it. That was great. Confession, I haven't seen it yet. If you're like me, I'm one of those people that's like, you can't film that comic. This show did it in a way that I think is the way to do it. I think it's brilliant. Is that they basically were saying, well, we can't make that. So we're going to make a sequel. Comic is the comic. And then this happens afterwards. And I think that's the best way to do it is that you that way you're not tramping on the comic and going, oh, well, we got that wrong. We got that wrong. We got that wrong. Right. Yeah. And plus, you got Jeremy Irons playing Ozymandias, which is superb. He's excellent. It's a really great show. And then Mandalorian, because Star Wars, everybody watches Star Wars. That I did. Yes, I did see that. Uh, that one was fun. But yeah, so I, I watch TV, but it's, it's less. So I usually, like I said, I'll watch like an episode or something like that. But yeah, The Outsider has... I missed the answer. Like, I saw the first episode of Castle Rock, and I was like, this is great! <laughs> Redemption, yeah. But I just, I for some reason, my brain just doesn't log it the same way that I do movies or comics or, like that, or books. I don't know why. Well, it'll be there for a while, you know. I mean, you can always, when you finish the book, whenever that's going to be, you can always go out there and just watch it all at once or watch it in big chunks if you feel like it, you know? Yeah, that's the I'll beauty of streaming. Know. That's the way that I'm probably going to do it. <laughs> well, the book sounds great. I'm looking forward to it. It's coming out May 27th. May 27th. The same date as Pulp. Oh, yes. Wow. Crazy. That'll be a big week. They'll probably boost each other that week. Well, I hope so. I, to me, that's insane that I'm coming out the same week as them. And to, to kind of be analogous to them in this way is uh, crazy to me. But yeah, no, it's it's going to be great for both books, I think. Especially because they're both Western tales, essentially. Um, although obviously there's like a tale of the old last stars is, you know, modern take on neo noir. Are you planning to have backup articles or stories in your comic? Uh, so the first issue has a letter in it in which I invoke a Texas writer who's a journalist writer named, uh, Bud Shrake. He has an epitaph on his tombstone that says, uh, so far, so bueno. And I thought that was a really good way to approach a letter page to the end of a first issue from a debut duo. So far, so bueno. You got to read that one. And then uh, all of them, them are going to have like a short letter in them in some capacity where the inspirations came from, yada, yada. But also in issues two through six. So character Randy, who's the lead character, he's the one who's living in Los Angeles. As somebody who lives in Los Angeles, he's a writer. There you go. <laughs> um <laughs> Well, yeah, so he's a writer, and so we're publishing sort of Alan Moore-style, not-as-good 
<laughs> but uh, Alan Moore style, a short story written by Randy Terrell called Flying Rodents. I wanted it to be analogous to the story that we're telling in the actual book, Over the Top. So it's about two guys who are in a shed in a field in Texas, and they're both dying. One of them is already dead. They both suffered gunshots. The one guy is looking out through this little sliver as his life is going, and he's he's looking out this little sliver and into the into the sky, and he's seeing these uh, bats flying around. And he's thinking to himself about how if he had just you know he was a poor kid growing up, he got caught up in a crime and all that kind of stuff just to keep a roof over his head, food in his mouth. He thinks about how he loves bats, and this was a thing that he wanted to study, and he knows so much about, but he not, he's not educated enough to have done anything about it. So now he's watching them dance in the sky as he's dying and he's thinking about the mistakes that he and his buddy had made and why they are where they are. It's sort of analogous to the story that we're telling in that it's about guys who are really great friends. And in the case of A Brother's Conscience, the arc, that is a brother dies, a brother who's been away comes back. And this short story that Randy has written that is going to be in the back of the issues, it's about two friends who are like brothers and the mistakes that they made and why they wind up in the situation that they're in. And it's analogous in that way. It sort of has the same tone, you know, sort of like doomed, foreboding sort of thing. So, that, yeah, there are definitely backups. Um, I hope at some point to start kind of doling them out to other people, having other people do essays and stuff like that, because I love that about Criminal. Brubaker doesn't write the essays. <laughs> so mm-hmm. Kim Morgan does, and I love her writing. I think she's fantastic. If I've heard of the film, Awesome. I read it. If I haven't, even more awesome. I read it, and then I watch the movie, and I discover this movie, and I'm like, oh, wow. That's great. I hope to do something like that at some point. And that was definitely inspired by Brubaker and Phillips. I've always just loved those sorts of things in the backs of books. I remember reading uh, Matt Kent's uh, Mind Management. When there's little notes in the margins. I love that kind of stuff. And I mean, I can't really do that in Texas Blood because it's not that kind of story. But I can do that in short stories. And I can do that in like essays and things like that in the back. Kind of play with the story in a larger way than just people speaking or thoughts or captions, narrator captions or whatever, or what have you. No, I, I really like that because to me, it makes it like a magazine, not just a comic book. You know, because all that content's in there. I really enjoy that extra stuff. Well, you know, just piggybacking off of that. So I like the idea of like multimedia, like you're saying, like to make it more like a magazine or something. I also am making uh, Spotify playlists that people can listen to, which was uh, inspired by one of my favorite writers, Michael Shabon. He does that with his books. He puts out like, a playlist that you can listen to that he was listening to while he wrote it. And so I'm kind of doing that, but I'm sort of curating it to be sort of like give a tone about the story or whatever. And so the first issue Spotify playlist opens with the theme from Paris, Texas by Ry Cooter. Just give like sort of a feel of what it's going to be like. And so that's another way that I wanted to kind of be like, let's make this as immersive an experience as possible. I know Jacob has listened to the playlist while he's drawing and that's an inspiration for him when he's drawing. I don't know how big of an inspiration it is for him, but it's definitely... (laughs) There's that. Also, if I could just jump in real quick and just say that Jacob's artwork is crazy. I'm so excited for you to see this. And the Nerdist article, if you haven't read it, read it because she kind of nails exactly what is so good about him. I don't know. It's not just the line work. It's not just the colors. And the colors are amazing. I love how he does this sort of like almost like scratchy sort of old photo picture the thing that you find in like a basement somewhere covered in dust. He does that kind of thing with the colors, which is really cool. And that, that is in the preview that you see. But uh, it's the letters as well. Uh, his lettering is phenomenal. It's perfect for the comic. It's not just like some font that he just threw in there. It's it's a perfect choice. And that's what he makes him so good is that he's really meticulous in that way. And that's part of our collaboration is that he generally like it's what I wrote. I'll like write like low angle, whatever. And then he'll like push in. You know, <laughs> to close up where I was like, oh, yeah, that's brilliant. That's perfect. So it's all it's almost like in that way, like an onset sort of like decision from a cinematographer. Like, I think maybe this would be better this way or whatever, you know. And so like we're sort of playing with that sort of idea. So I'll be like, OK, like, let's do it this way. So that's how I'll write my scripts. So I'll sort of like write like wide angle, this angle, this angle, this angle. Like this should be like almost like the shots before the crop duster scene in North by Northwest. And if you read issue two or three, you'll see that. And so he kind of does exactly what the script says, but also does something with his pants. They're <laughs> just like amazing. And I'm so, I'm so amazingly lucky to have him alongside me on this adventure. And uh, yeah, no, it's I 
couldn't imagine this story now happening without him. Honestly, it's like now it's just I don't think this was going to be anything else. It's like this is the way that it's got to be. And I honestly believe that. I'm not just saying that because I'm on podcast right now. <laughs> I honestly, like think that that's it. this is the way that it was supposed to be. It's supposed to be a comic. Really, truly believe that. The way he drew Joe Bob, who is a character that I loved. I just honestly, I'd never so much fun writing a character than I did Joe Bob. It's just his wells and everything. I just love him. He's my favorite character ever that I've ever written. And I bet it will come across because he shows up a lot. But yeah, it's uh, he drew him in such a way that it's like, yeah, he might evoke like Sam Elliott or Daphne Coleman or any of these other people that people keep mentioning. But it's also that he's just like, he cut something. This guy just like, you want to just sit with him and chat or just even just sit there with him. Like, you know, just like absorb his energy whatever but yeah it's just he he's really like brought this thing to life in a way that i i I don't know if it would have happened otherwise even if i was able to make it as a movie i don't know if it would have the same energy or the same anything this is the way that it's got to be it's beautiful i just the expressions on the faces the angles of each of the panels the colors that he uses if people liked criminal they like killer be killed they're going to definitely love this i hope you rest up because you're gonna be writing a lot because they're going to want more I'm telling you, I can't see this thing not doing well. I hope it does. Fingers crossed. Fingers are definitely crossed. There's none crossed behind my back. I really hope it does well. Obviously, just be cool to be a part of that thing. But also, I just hope that it does well because there's so many stories that we want to tell. And there's going to be stories that we can tell that could be a spinoff. There's like a a horror story that I could do. And then there's like a sci-fi thing that I could do, but it's not part of the main story. Because the main story is a sheriff in a county who's dealing with some bad stuff happening you know that's the story like that is what this is in general so i can't tell the other stories because it doesn't fit and i tried when i was kind of planning out how the the series was gonna go i'm like oh yeah i can do this one it'll be cool people will love it all of a sudden there's like a horror thing i'm like no it doesn't fit if it doesn't fit it doesn't fit no don't force it in Everything should be natural. Hopefully it doesn't. Well, now we're at the point where I kick back with the creator and ask you questions about you, learn more about you as a person. Outside of comics can include comics. That's just fine. What do you like to do, Chris, for recreation? Movies, 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 and movies. That's generally it. (laughs) I like to cook. Do you have a favorite dish? Uh, Growing up, it was lasagna. Okay. I would probably say it's a general answer, but it's cheeseburgers. I love cheeseburgers. I love them too. I'm not too far from like the fat burgers and the In-N-Out burgers out here, and it's <laughs> it's great. is <laughs> in Hackensack, New Jersey. It's called White Mana. I can tell you that Anthony Bourdain was a big fan of it as well. Oh, okay. In high school, we would travel up there and just go there for the White Mana. It was literally, it's a tiny little place in Hackensack. Fits maybe like 15 people tops. It's like an old, 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 old diner. It's great. They're in a window right in front of you. They're cooking you the burgers. They look up at you. They go, huh? And then you go, uh, five cheeseburgers, uh, no onion, pickles on the side. Okay. Just make some. It's honestly the best cheeseburger you'll ever have. White manna. If you get to go, I recommend it. Can you think of a favorite birthday of yours and why it was your favorite? This last birthday. Because not to be like a sob story or anything like that, but, you know, I, my 20s were pretty rocky for me. You know, I think that that's what they're meant for, <laughs> is that you kind of discover yourself. You discover who you are and what you are. And this last birthday, I was with my girlfriend, and she made it an amazing experience. And I just, I don't know, it just it was the first birthday that I really felt like it was a birthday and like I meant something. And, like, things were happening with the comic, you know. Jacob, like, posted about it, and I'm like, that, well, that's cool. Because I had to share it with David Bowie and Elvis, so there's that. <laughs> um, so you, feeling special next to those guys is nice. But, yeah, it was just, you know, basically it was – my girlfriend made it really special. It was, it was a really nice, really nice day. Uh, not to be too sentimental or anything. She made a cake. It was a nice day. So it was nice. January 8th? January 8th, yes. Good day. <laughs> I was born in a blizzard, if you're wondering. Oh, really? Yep. Luckily, they got to the hospital. <laughs> what would be your island book if you were stuck on a deserted island and you wanted a book for pleasure? What would you want to have with you to read? And it can be a set of books. It can be comic, graphic novel, whatever. Can I say two? Yeah. Comic and then one a novel. So my novel would be Michael Chabon's Moonglow. came out, I think, in 2017. And that was... A book that I read that really hit me hard. It's about a grandfather, I guess, dying. And he's on some drugs and he starts like telling 
his grandson, all these like crazy things about his family. And being from an older family and like have kind of having like dealing with these sorts of things myself, it was really like, I don't know, I found it really personal. And honestly, like reading like The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, Shavon did, which is a comic story essentially. It's by comic writers. Basically, sequel and shoes to me. That was a great book. That was like my favorite for the longest time. And then I read Moon Glove, and that one really uh, spoke to me, I guess. And then the comic would have to be the great Darwin Cook, his new frontier. Yes. I can pick that book up any day and just stare at that. The John Henry stuff is phenomenal. They kind of did it in the new Watchmen show, and I kind of wish that they would just do a new frontier show. But, uh, because that stuff, I, I mean, I loaned that. I didn't have a lot of money growing up, but like I saved up and I got the absolute one. Because I was like that much obsessed with Darwin Cook. <laughs> I, <laughs> I loved I, his Parker series is like amazing, yeah. stuff, but the first page of his Parker is amazing. But yeah, New Frontier is just like any page you open to, it's going to be just full of just energy. It's like this Jack Kirby sort of energy. Built. Yeah. This like sort of like fifties mod stuff. I don't know. It's he had something about him that just I don't think any other artist really has or had. He was really something special. It's sad that he passed away in twenty sixteen. I think Sean Phillips is actually doing a compendium of the Parker series, which is going to be due out maybe next year. I don't know. That I'm looking forward to. I mean, the stuff that we didn't get from that guy. To be selfish, it's like you want to see the things that your favorite creators weren't able to finish. And that's what going back to like Joe Dante when I'd read the scripts for like Dinosaurs Attacks and I'd talk to him, I'd be like, this is like amazing. Like, the dinosaurs have like gremlin attitudes. Like this is great. And he'd be like, it would have been great, right? You know, and it's kind of sad to think that, oh, these all these like great ideas just don't fit in our crazy world, I guess. I don't know. Another hypothetical. Image makes an action figure of you. What would be your accessory? <laughs> a coffee cup. <laughs> uh, definitely a coffee cup. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much me. I drink a lot of coffee. I used to drink more, and I drink a lot still. I do, too. I poured coffee the other day, and my wife said she went downstairs after I left for work, and she tried to pour coffee before two meetings back-to-back, -back, and it just like a couple drops came out. She texted me. She says, you must be flying. I said, why? She goes, you drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> I live with two roommates, and I make eight cups of coffee at like six or seven in the morning whenever I wake up. There's like half of that is gone by the time one of them wakes up. And then one of them has a cup and then I have another cup. And then it's just, it's first come for surf in my house. <laughs> it works. Yeah, I just, I drink a lot of coffee. I don't know. It used to be more though. I remember I used to have like eight cups of coffee a day. No. no. It's crazy. It was bad. Well, that dovetails into my next question. What is your beverage of choice when you're relaxing? I like a club soda, honestly. There's this new thing called Spin Drift, which is really tasty, like club soda. It's really good. And I would say that. That or a beer, probably. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, not, I wouldn't say coffee, because coffee is me winding up. That's not me relaxing. If I'm going to relax, I sort of think that that's going to be the thing. And my final question is, what would you wish you could do over in your life? If you could change anything, what would you do differently? Not much, because I don't think that I would have been here. Honestly, I wish that things had been different in certain aspects of my life, because I certainly wish that there were people that have you know, left my life that I wish that were still a part of. I don't know, just friends that you don't see, things like that. You know, life is weird, but at the same time, you, you regret those things. But at the end of the day, they make you who you are. And I wouldn't have a comic right now with Image Comics if I wasn't where I am right now. I strongly believe that. Um, I might be elsewhere. Maybe I'd be successful. Maybe I wouldn't. But I don't think I'd be where I am right now, and I'm enjoying my life. That's a big thing for me to say. <laughs> a very uh, pessimistic person. Not pessimistic, but I like to say realist. I'm really happy with how things are going right now. If you're happy with how things are going and you're enjoying what you're doing, a lot of people don't. So you're in a really good place, man. I Agree. Like I said, you know, I don't think I change anything because I just, this is luck. Cards went, I got the aces. So that's Texas Blood, Image Comics, Art with Jacob Phillips. Don't miss it. Chris, thanks so much for being on Creator Talks. Thank you so much, Chris. I had a great time. Okay, as you are now all well aware because of the COVID-19 pandemic, the date for the release of that Texas Blood will be at a later date. So look for it and don't miss it. And another quick update, I will have appeared and will be appearing on another podcast, George Hanna's Meanwhile at the Podcast. I'll be a guest on the show along with Eric from Longbox Review, and who also does the Legion podcast and In the Gutters. 
So I am on the April 25th show and the May 2nd show. Why two? Because we had so much fun talking, time just flew by. They both asked me questions about how I got into comic book collecting and turned the tables on me and asked me the questions I ask all my guests. And now for the usual information, this podcast is free. Please subscribe. It is on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, YouTube, Amazon voice-enabled devices, and on Spotify. And please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. There is a link in the show notes that goes right to my podcast. If you have an iPhone, you have Apple Podcasts, just go to the link, scroll down, and you'll see where you can leave a star rating and or review. And as always, tell people who love comics and comic book creators about the show. That is the best way to help grow the audience so I can continue to bring you interviews with comic book writers, artists, colorists, publishers, editors, people working in the business, both veterans and up and coming. And oh, I do have more interviews in queue. I don't want to say who yet. They are done. I just want to surprise everyone. So two more ready to go for the month of May. I hope that all of you are doing well, staying healthy, keeping your social distance from others so that we don't spread the disease until we get a better handle on this. I know it's difficult being stuck at home, many of you out of work, many of you working from home, but this too shall pass. Better times are ahead. Meanwhile, be good to one another, enjoy your comics, the ones you already have, and look forward to those that will be coming out once we figure out the best way and the safe way to do it. That's all for this week. I'll be back in two weeks. For Creator Talks, this has been your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.